We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. to anything but uh, based on a comment you made in reading these books i've done a lot of research reading through forums and a thing that i found highly amusing is that a lot of the diehard tolkien fans who post to these forums refer to the movies as peter jackson's fan fiction one of the best movie series ever made definitely one of the best adaptations ever done but go off Lord of the Rings fans. Yeah, and it's, of course, it's always based off, like, the most minute details. Anyway, it doesn't matter. To make a slight argument that's granted based off a very generous read, in that passage that you read about Sam feeling pity, I'm just going to continue. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. Oh, curse you, you stinking thing, he said. Go away. Be off. I don't trust you. Not as far as I could kick you. But be off, or I shall hurt you, yes, with nasty, cruel steel. One could argue that we are supposed to contrast that with Frodo's approach to feeling pity towards Gollum. It is very explicitly stated here that this is a a weakness, I suppose, in Sam's approach or feelings or whatever, in, in the fact that he cannot express it. That is a fatal flaw for him. Well, I guess it's more of a fatal flaw for Gollum, but (laughs) there's this implicit criticism levied at Sam that because he doesn't have the words, he's not able to properly express himself. So this moment in some ways falls flat because even though he's feeling pity, he's not acting in a way that properly translates that pity. That said, this whole trilogy is very aware of the way stories echo throughout eternity. Not to paraphrase Gladiator by accident there. What we do in life echoes in eternity. (laughs) No, like I mentioned that moment with Pippin where he recognizes when somebody shouts, the eagles are coming. (laughs) Hey, that's a moment from Bilbo's story. But it's also more subtle in like the Baron and Luthien story mirroring Aragorn and Arwen's story. So it's puzzling that in this moment of pity, It never occurs to Sam, who almost basically worships Bilbo at the beginning of this book, uh, of this trilogy, right? Yeah. He knows all about the stories. He never makes that connection. And that's odd. I mean, granted, Sam is very, very tired. He's probably not in his perfect mind. At the same time, if if Pippin, Pippin can make that reference when he's being crushed to death by an orc, God, I don't care if it's realistic or not. Give Sam that moment, too. That alone, I, I don't think it would have fixed all of your issues with it, but I think it would have been a big help. Mm-hmm. It feels like Frodo is learning a lot or is being impressed upon a lot by Sam, and he's really acknowledging everything that Sam has done and blah, blah, blah. It's frustrating that the reverse doesn't seem to be true, that Sam doesn't necessarily seem to be picking up on things from Frodo or at the very least recognizing that he's picking those things up from Frodo, that the narrative doesn't bother to jump in and tell us that this is the case. Yep, agreed. Yeah, I mean, if I wanted to very uncharitably read this, and this isn't my actual reading, but I'm just saying it's a reading you could draw 
there's a way in which you could see the narrative as positioning Sam as more of an heir to Bilbo than Frodo. Mm. I mean, certainly we hear so much about Sam learning things from Bilbo and like picking things up from Bilbo. And I think you could see Mm. their stories as more of a parallel like Bilbo, Sam has this growth arc of learning how much he can do and becoming more and more essential and more strong and more. He sneaks into a tower and rescues Frodo. And that's very like, you know, that's a very Bilbo like thing to do. I think you could 100% read this as like the narrative being like, uh, you thought Frodo was going to be the one to follow in Bilbo's footsteps, but actually it was Sam. That's not how I choose to read it. I mean... (laughs) But I think you can read it that way, and I think that that is kind of unfortunate. Sam does move into Bag End at the end. Yeah. He's the one that is entrusted with the story to continue writing the story to finish it, right? I'm sad. (laughs) Well, you know, to piggyback on that argument, I suppose we've been dancing around this, the argument about... The ending of the ring via Gollum dancing in a volcano. (laughs) You pretty much have my reason I don't like it. I mean, I don't particularly care that Gollum just happens to trip off. That's not necessarily what bothers me. It's fine. I know there are some people who deeply hate that idea. I have kind of neutral feelings on it. My problem is that because of how things are set up, the ending is entirely... Uh, essentially about about sam's moment frodo has has no at least in the movie even if he's grappling with Gollum for the wrong reasons you know yeah frodo does contribute to the end of the ring surely by just wrestling on accident Gollum off the cliff yeah and so there's just a little agency for frodo there so my yeah my issue is is just pretty much connected with the entire discussion we had if that that moment with sam and Gollum had been different before if it had been Frodo's moment or if it had been connected to Frodo in some way, I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with Gollum just dancing off the edge. It's it's a couple of things for me that don't necessarily have anything to do with the hobbits themselves because I think this is a larger moment where you see a culmination of this idea, essentially evil shooting itself in the foot. If you go all the way back to the Fellowship of the Ring, there's a moment where they're trying to figure out, like, how the hell did Gollum get out of Mordor? Because we know that Gollum was captured by the enemy, and they surmise that, in fact, the enemy let Gollum go. Gimli has this moment describing the dead people that Aragorn is able to recruit, I guess. They used to worship Sauron, they were in league with the enemy, Isildur cursed them, Aragorn recruits them, they help him out in the Battle of Minas Tirith. And so Gimli says, Strange and wonderful I thought it, that the designs of Mordor should be overthrown by such wraiths of fear and darkness. With its own weapons was it worsted. That moment with Gollum, there's like a really powerful moment. I'm sorry, I'm going to just quote another thing. Let me see if I can find it. It's because our summary was too short. That's why we need more summary. There's the moment that Sauron realizes he is f***ed up. Yeah. (laughs) That moment's pretty funny. 
and far away as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in, I'm not going to pronounce this right, even in Samoth Naur, the very heart of his realm, the power in Bardur was shaken, and the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye piercing all shadows looked across the plain to the door that he had made, and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. All these actions the enemy took, thinking it would undermine the good guys here, ends up biting it in the <laughs> and. Really, Gollum's the real hero of this whole saga because it started with him like 600 years ago when he first took the ring. It's not like an epic moment at the end where there's there's a final intense wrestling match between uh, Gollum and Frodo for, for control of the ring. There's just something so fitting in this final small note. I like it a lot. I think it works really, really well. Granted, it's not perfect because I do think, what are Frodo and Sam doing in that moment? Just standing there? Like, it doesn't quite work within the scene. So I think the movie was right to change it. But thematically, I think it's a really interesting and powerful moment of everything finally coming together. And this is how it ends. It started with a hobbit that was completely and fully corrupted. A hobbit that was so intent on preserving the ring. And in the end, it all just backfires in almost a comical fashion. Which I guess is what a lot of people's problem with it. Is that it it does read <laughs> as comical. I don't know. I don't know if I can properly express it. Like Sam, I don't have the words, I guess. But I... I this intricate and complex web of deceit and lies and, and manipulation that the enemy has composed is all undone by pulling on the smallest thread that he thought was so insignificant that he didn't even think about it. What a bigger f*** you to Sauron can you say than like, <laughs> some hobbits are going to f***ing kill you right now. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I like that. I like that. That's my argument. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you've done a good job of selling it. I mean, I agree. I I am definitely glad they changed it for the visual medium because I think that it just would have looked stupid. I mean, like, I think that's the problem is that, like, if you visually watch it, it looks it looks silly. Yeah. And yeah, there are, there are certainly reasons I I enjoy it. I think that I probably one of my overall critiques of The Lord of the Rings is that as much as things are set up, well overall there's certain things that are just like there are a few too many like convenient coincidences <laughs> or like you know convenient moments for the good guys for me that mm -hmm. i think that obviously Gollum dancing off the edge is for all the reasons you said great impactful love it i did also notice that moment of of the power of the ring speaking through frodo and accidentally jinxing itself and i think that that that's a great all the points you made about like evil destroying itself or, and I think, yeah, again, Gollum being the one to destroy the ring, I like. And I think that probably, I'd have to look into it more, but like probably in support of your argument to some extent is, um, <laughs> there's this thing called ring structure ah, yes. uh, for narratives, which like is very appropriate to Lord of the Rings and is very much a thing that was in a lot of Old English and Middle English literature. So like 
Tolkien would have been very familiar with it. I believe it's also talked about in reference to the Bible a lot, Mm -hmm. to no one's surprise. So the (laughs) idea is that, like, the narrative is built as this sort of ring where, like, the moments parallel each other working from a midpoint. Certainly, if you, I know there are plenty of scholars who have looked at The Lord of the Rings as a ring-structured narrative, and I think that, you know, there is something in that field that, that it comes back to Gollum in the end. And I think that there are a lot of, lot of arguments that can be made for it. Like I said, I, I, other than my sort of disappointment about Frodo's lack of involvement and in everything to do with that final <laughs> moment. Uh-huh. Like, I'm personally neutral on Gollum dancing over the edge because I see the arguments for it, but I also think it's faintly ridiculous. I wish that at, l- at least, I don't know. <sighs> <laughs> Maybe, like, in his struggle of biting Frodo, like, they're flailing around, and he gets it, but he's already in the air flying back. Like, you know what I mean? That would make slightly more sense. And it wouldn't even necessarily be something Frodo's trying to do. It's just that, you know, they are already, like, battling over the ring because Frodo's, or because Gollum's trying to bite it off Frodo's finger. Yeah. So I do feel like there could have been a more natural way. For, like, essentially Gollum to do the same thing to himself, to have, like, this moment of triumph of thinking he's won, but also, like, accidentally destroying it. And then I think that I'm also now, because I've I've read the book version of this ending, uh-huh. and we had the talk last time about Tolkien's whole other plot that could have happened if Sam was just nice to Gollum that one time. Now I'm like, oh, but that moment would have been so cool. <laughs> So I do think it makes me feel more mediocre about this one as well. Well, I'm sorry to have done that to you. (laughs) I think that you sold sold the moment very well. And I do think, you know, we you've already talked quite a bit and I listened mostly about the importance of songs and music and those things in the Lord of the Rings. And so I do think the fact that Gollum is dancing, um, which like there's obviously no actual music happening, but like the fact that he's dancing is an interesting sort of callback to that. And and I think there could be, you know, you could read into that. I would argue that Gollum is doing a cover of that. What's that song? The 433 song. Do you know what I mean? No. It's like this classical composer. Or I, I guess he's not classical. It's a, a He's a modern composer who composed this song where he just sits at a piano and doesn't do anything for four minutes and 33 seconds. And the idea is that the music is all the ambient noise around you. This joke would have landed much more if you actually <laughs> knew what that was. So now it's I yeah. just it's all ruined. It's all it's Sorry. all ruined just like this book. This book is ruined for everything forever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do want to just take a moment to give some kudos to this book. We've already talked about the last chapter being great. The scouring of the shire is really interesting even if I'm not sure about how it affects the pacing of the book. I really enjoyed actually a lot of Sam and Frodo's slog through Mordor. Once Sam has rescued Frodo and they're slogging through, I think it was gripping, tense. It felt like everything sucked and that's how it's supposed to feel. Yeah. I thought the lead up to this was all great. Yeah, I think that's what I liked about this book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I liked that, uh, Legolas and Gimli do get to go back to the caves. Oh, and I liked all the moments where Merry and Pippin are thinking about each other and missing each other. 
I will say, I, I don't think we've really talked about it too much because we've been so wrapped up in the thematic and symbolic discussions. But like, this is a really riveting series. Like, yeah, that that whole ending, I was just f***ing in that moment. I mean, I, obviously I knew how it was going to end, but I'm just like, oh my God, I can't stop reading. I need to know what happens next. Tolkien, like he's really good. I, I know, hot take, <laughs> but he's really good. Yes, as long as it's not battle time, he's he's great. <laughs> as long as it's not battle time. Before we get into the battles, because I just think it's going to be another <sighs> slog. <laughs> I mean, you've been hitting hard on Sam, and I do think we need to give Sam some credit. For a brief period of time, he is the ring bearer. He is wearing, uh, holding the ring. Sometimes he wears it, and he has these really interesting moments of temptation. Because there's one where he has this vision. Oh, yeah. A lot of other characters have had visions of what they would become if they wore the ring. And Sam has his own vision where he imagines that he would basically take over and transform Mordor into a beautiful garden. I found that moment if you want the quote. Oh, pl can you please read? Um, In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that mm -hmm. helped most to hold him firm. But also deep down in him lived, lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. And then he says, And anyway, all these notions are only a trick. He'd spot me and cow me before I could so much as shout out. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I liked with, with Sam in this story is that we really get to see him by himself. And I really like that moment because it shows it's like his Galadriel moment mm. where he recognizes that he would not be able to control the ring. It's just not possible. It's a trick, as he says. And... He went through the test, and, and I think it is part of Tolkien's ambition to cast him as the hero where he recognizes his own weakness, his own potential to be corrupted, and rejects it. That moment is supposed to be a really, really powerful moment, and it is not as powerful as what Frodo actually does because Frodo has to deal with that temptation the entire trilogy. But I do think it's a, it's a nice moment for Sam of recognizing him as like a master of his own person, of his own limitations, and in essence, rejecting the foibles that, that would undo him. Yes. I mean, Sam has plenty of great moments, and I love Sam. And I really wish that my Sam feelings had not been uh, soured by my <laughs> anger over Frodo not getting his due. And I think that, you know, the fact that, uh, as it says in the book, that love of Frodo is a lot of what helps him in yeah. this moment. I'm still continue to be uncomfortable and will always be uncomfortable with the master-servant dynamic going on. Sure. I wish they could have just dropped that at some point and been like, you're my friend, Sam. Please just call me Frodo. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. But uh. I guess I can chalk it up to early 20th, or I guess mid 20th century England. 
That's way too late for this to be happening. Well, but also he's like, yeah. Tolkien is writing about a very old fashioned style of living, you know. But yes, uh, <laughs> I think that there's, there is much good Sam content to be had. And you know what? Sam is a great, a great Sam. We like Sam a lot. Sam is great. I stamp of approval on Sam. Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. But only as long as you also appreciate Frodo. Otherwise, you get no stamps from me. Yeah, there you go. The moments that are most impactful, like the, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry it. Like, that is a very uh, incredible moment. Mm. I think what makes that scene, the, the whole plot line with Frodo and Sam so powerful for me, you just see over the course of them trekking across Mordor, hope get crushed in Sam. But despite that, he continues and finds, strangely enough, this new strength in this kind of despairing realization that we're not going to make it back. Uh, at least he assumes that's going to be the case, which is a fair assumption. Indeed. <laughs> um, Very fair. And and there's that moment where he throws away his cook. He's dragging his fucking cooking gear yeah, that, that was into pretty funny. Mordor. <laughs> Sam, you lovable idiot. But it's it's tragic that moment where he throws it away because that, that's the moment he realizes there's no point. And despite that, it's like what you were saying in the last episode, that you don't need hope to do the right thing. He keeps going. He carries his f***ing master, even though he's tired as f***. He's dying of thirst, dying of hunger. I just wanted to be clear that Sam is great. You yeah. Know, like we, there, our criticisms are aimed at the narrative, are aimed at Tolkien's decisions. Sam himself is a good god person. No, absolutely. I try. I tried to make that as clear as possible when I was making those criticisms. Yes. And I'm not like I. I admittedly do feel slightly bitter right now, just in terms of I think more. Yeah, people's perceptions. I have absolutely nothing against Sam. I love Sam as a character. I think he's a fantastic character, a fantastic hobbit. I would be proud to have a Sam friend, you know? <laughs> yeah. I aspire to, to be a Sam to someone. Yeah. Like, we should all aspire to be a Sam. It's just making sure that, like, you know, we're not... That we're uh, we're considering and and appreciating like both characters equally because Sam Sam gets to be Sam because of Frodo. Frodo gets to be Frodo because of Sam. Yeah, exactly. They give that to each other. Like friendship. Sorry, I just like wrapping up my thesis. So I'm thinking a lot about like early modern literature, but like the the humanist idea of friendship from that time is that a friend is another self mm -hmm. that you discover yourself in. This kind of mirror that helps sort of reinforce your own identity because you're finding yourself in that, if that makes sense. And I think that's such a lovely and beautiful way to think about friendship. And I think that their friendship, their friendship is the true hero of this story. Right. I was going to say, it's not that we should aspire to be just Sam. We should aspire to be Sam and Frodo. I don't, I don't think Tolkien would disagree with that. Uh, it's just unfortunately doesn't quite play that way in in the. I don't know. He's 
He's my enemy now. <laughs> Clive is your enemy, and I, I'm going to fight Tolkien over Frodo. Like, I'm mad. I'm so mad. Here I just thought it was people misinterpreting, but no. No, Tolkien wrote this in his own letters. Yes. And, you know, this is why he's dead to me forever and ever. He no longer has a valid opinion. He's wrong. He can go die again in his little <laughs> hole. <laughs> This is our equivalent of Marvel's Civil War, you know, <laughs> Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis. That's where. No, it's like I, I never had any expectations of Clive. I call him Clive. You know, like this is this is where we're at. Tolkien. I thought I thought he would be better. You were the chosen one. It was said that you would destroy C.S. Lewis. Not join them. <sighs> I don't want us to beat a dead horse more yes. than we have to. So perhaps we can talk about the actual dead horse here. <laughs> that poor horse. Oh. That poor horse. I mean, this is a minor note. Yeah. Theoden's horse's name is Snow Mane. Very pretty name. <laughs> but this is the epitaph uh. that they carved for him. Faithful servant, yet master's bane. Lightfoot's foal, swift snowman. And that is how he's remembered. This is this is the kind of thing that is ripe for misinterpretation by future generations. Because <laughs> they'll come by, see this grave, and be like, this horse killed his own king? What an asshole. And it's like, no, no. They were literally attacked by a fucking Nazgul. You don't understand. It's not really the horse's fault at all. So I'm so bitter for this horse. (laughs) 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 And I mean, it's like I'm I'm looking back now and like. It's so freaky. Like I would have freaked out, too. The Nazgul's descending from above, like all these horses are rearing and screaming and men are like groveling on the ground. It's so freaky. Everyone is is in this state of terror. And the only one in the beginning who is able to stand against the Witch King is Eowyn. And then even Eowyn is at some point cowed until Mary's able to stab him in the back. I don't know why we're blaming this horse. <laughs> You know, I guess that's the culmination to ring theory this, uh, given the the ponies that died in The Hobbit. He really seems to have a love-hate relationship with them because sometimes yeah. he, he's writing pornographic entries about shadow facts. <laughs> and then other times he's like, this horse, you know, Tolkien's treatment of horses is much like the men's treatment of women <laughs> in real life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Or just in this book series. Uh, should we talk about Eowyn? I feel like we're circling around Eowyn right now. Let me first say, because I I want to hear your perspective, but just to, mm-hmm. to correct a mistake from the last uh, episode that we made, mm-hmm. talking about the women in Lord of the Rings, we neglected to mention Goldberry as one of the women in the story. Not that she really is any more interesting than the other woman and i don't think like she's not really that distinct from say galadriel but i just felt like 
we neglected to also mention her. Yes, she exists. Indeed. Anyway, Eowyn, though. And actually... What? what? <laughs> to correct something also from our last oh. episode, just because I didn't know this happened. I think we talked about Eowyn's line about, Oh, right, about the cage. The, about the cage, and I attributed it as something the movies had made up. But no, it, it is here in this book. Yeah, we were preemptive in our yes. criticism, I suppose. So she does have the moment when she's talking with Aragorn, trying to fucking get him to, like, take her with him. She says, you know, I do not fear either pain or death. And he says, what do you fear, lady? And she says, a cage to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them. And all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. And there's, I think, quite a bit of discussion uh, later on when she's healing with Aomer about how she may have, you know, she had to listen to Wormcome too. She might have absorbed a lot of the ideas and criticisms about the Rohirrim just kind of being this uh, savage people, her home being this hovel, and, and that it's all kind of dark and disgusting and, and very small and little. And therefore that she sees Aragorn as this, you know, great king who could help elevate her and lead her into this bigger, larger, better life. So I, I do think that Eowyn does get some more complexity in this story. A lot of the elements that are done well with her in the movie are, are here in this book, which I did not know, and so I give Tolkien credit for those things existing. I think that my biggest problem is that... Her, <laughs> uh, so she's rejected by Aragorn. <laughs> Hardcore. And then she... Um, let me see if I can find... When she is taking Mary, he notices uh, Durnhelm before uh, Durnhelm comes up and, and takes him. So Mary sees a young man less in height and girth than most. And Mary catches the glint of clear gray eyes. And then he shivered for it came suddenly to him that it was the face of one without hope who goes in search of death. So the problem is that ultimately, Eowyn's entire decision to go is positioned as like she wants to die because Aragorn has rejected her. Uh... And I don't love that. I think that I would be fine if she felt like, you know, everything was ending and she wanted to be with her family and everything. And, and the name Durnhelm, which by the way, I, this is my own little bit of research I did. Durnhelm means like hidden protector. So, like, it could very much have been cast as, like, her going along to help protect her uncle and her brother, who are obviously riding off into very uncertain battle. And she does end up trying to protect Theoden. Obviously, does a great deed and help she and Mary slay the Witch King together. But then, fucking Mary gets to be the one who talks to Theoden. She just passes out. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, this is the treatment of Eowyn is probably the most mixed bag <laughs> element of this book, certainly. Possibly the, the series. Yeah. The moment with, with the cage, has there's a great comeback that she has against Aragorn, where Aragorn is trying to argue for her to stay, right? Mm -hmm. He puts it this way. A time may come soon, said he, when none will return. Then there will be need of valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes. 
yet the deeds will not be less valiant because they are unpraised. And she answered, All your words are but to say, You are a woman, and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honor, you have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. Tolkien's self-aware. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awen's completely right. There, There is... We didn't talk too much about this moment in The Two Towers. When in The Two Towers they were deciding to go to Helm's Deep, Théoden was fretting about who was he going to leave behind to command Arorad? I can't, I can't remember the name of the, the city. Basically the capital of Rohan. And he's like, are there any volunteers to take on this job? And nobody volunteers. And I, I think he, he actually frames it as, are there any men who will volunteer? And then somebody comes in and says, one of the House of Earl should be in charge. And Théoden's like, what do you mean? Like, there's only Eomir and me, and we both can't go. This is going to be a ridiculous reference, but there, there's a, an episode <laughs> of Children's Hospital oh where they talk, like, it's this weird meta episode where they talk about the history of Children's the Hospital as a Children's show. Children's Hospital was a bona fide hit, but even as these gorgeous doctors were breaking hearts, the show itself was breaking new ground, such as this scene from season four, the first time a doctor was portrayed on television by a woman. Oh, sorry, nurse. We thought the new doctor was coming in. She did just come in. First of all, you mean he just came in. <laughs> and where is he? No, I definitely did not mean he. What are you talking about, nurse? What is your name again? The name is Lola Spratt. Dr. Lola Spratt. Righteous. It's basically that moment here where uh, Théoden just completely forgets that Eowyn exists because she is not a man. So you, you, you get that, these moments of her frustration against that, that feeling of being expendable. And, and you, so you get that moment of Eowyn fighting back against that, against Aragorn, who, let's be frank, Aragorn in this book is such a piece of <laughs> He's just so obnoxious. He sucks this entire book. Yeah, we'll get more into that in a second. Uh, there's a moment at the end when Theoden's dying where it's really weird. I don't know if I'm like misreading this somehow, but um, Theoden's basically saying goodbye to Mary. And he says, my body is broken. I go to my father's. And even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. I felled the black serpent. Eowyn is the one who killed killed the flying creature and so it's like this <laughs> even in his dying breath Théoden still has to erase Eowyn I, I appreciate I feel that's very true <laughs> to life yeah of women's women's accomplishments being minimized um, or or just completely taken over by men but then you you just you get the mixed bag element of it where let me put it this way. This book does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> <laughs> and even when Eowyn is present in the story, more often than not, it's men talking about her. There's one moment with Aragorn that I specifically want to call, call out. Okay. Eomir, Aragorn, Gandalf, and other people, I think, are having this like very uh, insightful conversation about recognizing like, oh, sh 
Awen's kind of had a shitty life where she's just never been recognized because she is specifically a woman. She is, by all rights, a noble woman. And by the events of this book, it is clear that she is just as capable of fighting and being brave and and stabbing people in the face as Aragorn or anyone else is. And so they talk about uh, how basically she is dying in part because of a broken heart. She is she has given up all hope because she's been rejected by Aragorn. And Aragorn <sighs> chimes in to say this. I saw also what you saw, Eomir. Few other griefs amid the ill chances of this world have more bitterness and shame for a man's heart than to behold the love of a lady so fair and brave that cannot be returned. Sorrow and pity have followed me ever since I left her desperate in Dunharrow and rode to the pass of the dead, and no fear upon that way was so present as the fear for what might befall her. And yet, Elmir, I say to you that she loves you more than truly. Yeah. There's this great Instagram account called. Awards for good boys, where <laughs> highly recommend. Although I, she's no longer active on social media, but you can. There's a quite a treasure trove of the whole premise is satirically giving credit to men or boys for doing the bare minimum. So here is Aragorn coming in, being like, "Yeah, Eowyn's dying, I guess, but really, let's talk about how hurt I was." That I had to reject her. Even when I was facing down freaking ghosts. That paled in comparison to my own broken heart for Eowyn that I had to reject her. Yeah. Well, and the worst thing is that, like, before this, the rest of the conversation is, is the one I referenced about how, like, she was, you know, deeply scarred by that time with Wormtongue there. Um... That was part of what was going on with her. And that's what's being talked about. Um, and I'll, I'll just read what, what Gandalf says, because why not? Because Amor's like, really? I had no idea until I saw what happened with Aragorn that, like, there was anything wrong with her. And then Gandalf says, my friend, you had horses and deeds of arm and the free fields. But she, born in the body of a maid, had a spirit and courage at least the match of yours. Yet she was doomed to wait upon an old man whom she loved as a father and watch him falling into a mean, dishonored dotage. Dotage? Dotage. Eh. And her part <laughs> seemed to her more ignoble than that of the staff he leaned on. Thank you that Wormtongue had poison only for Theoden's ears? Doddard, what is the house of Earl but a thatched barn where brigands drink in the reek and their brats roll on the floor among their dogs? Have you not heard those words before? Saruman spoke them, the teacher of Wormtongue. Though I do not doubt that Wormtongue at home wrapped their meaning in terms of more cunning. My lord, if your sister's love for you, and her will still bet to her duty, had not restrained her lips, you might have heard even such things as these escape them. But who knows what she spoke to the darkness, alone, in the bitter watches of the night, when all her life seemed shrinking, and the walls of her bower closing in about her, a hutch to trammel some wild thing in. Mm. That's like a lot, and then that's when Aragorn comes in and is like, <laughs> yep, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about her hurts. Right. What about and me? I, I think that's the hardest thing is that, like, it is saying all these interesting things about Eowyn and, like, what she's gone through. And, like, her place as a woman in society has specifically enacted these traumas upon her. Mm -hmm. But then the narrative also wants her big decision to go and die and, like, her her real pain 
to be not just about these things, but about how she really wanted to bang Aragorn, and Aragorn said no. No one says no to me! Faramir and her talk about this later, uh, as part of their wooing sequence, and, you know, he's, like, talking about, like, don't you love me, babe? <laughs> and she's like, I wish to be loved by another, I desire, and I desire no man's pity. And he's like, that I know, you desired to have the love of Lord Aragorn, um, because he's high and, oh god, another word I don't know how to pronounce, puissant? Shouldn't say that. Uh, <laughs> and you wish to have renown and glory, and to be lifted far above the mean things that crawl on the earth. And as a great captain may to a young soldier, he seemed to view you admirable. For so he is, blah 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 blah. But when he gave you only understanding and pity, then you desired to have nothing, unless a brave death in battle. Everything about her, by all these men telling her or talking about her, gets boiled down to, well, Aragorn didn't want to bang her, so she wanted to die. Hamlet loves me no more. So we kill ourselves? Kill ourselves? It could have been so much more interesting if, if her desire wasn't necessarily a, a romantic one, but indeed to escape, to have some sort of glory, to have some sort of meaning to her life. She could have still begged to go with Aragorn if she didn't have feelings for him. If she was just like, I need to get the f*** out. I need, I can't do this anymore. And like, how much more impactful would that have been if it hadn't all been about how like Eowyn needs to find a man. And you know, in the end, she's like, yeah, Faramir, you're my dude now. And I no longer want to be a shield maiden and do anything. And I'm just going to go live with you. In your place, and I'm gonna have a garden. Mm -hmm. Which, like, I'm happy for her if, like, she really wanted a garden this whole time. But I don't think what she wanted this whole time was a garden. <laughs> <laughs> I think she wanted to be free. And instead, what's happening is that she's agreeing to marry Faramir and essentially confine herself to another closed-in space. Except this one has the facade of looking like the outdoors mm. and freedom. Yeah, I am so torn by that chat because I think it, it hits on those thematic notes that have been present throughout this book of wanting to grow rather than to battle and, and sort of shifting this idea of valor away from battle to things that grow. Whatever you might feel about it, the fact that the quote unquote hero of the story is a gardener is a very telling detail, right? Right. And the, the moments of joy and beauty in this book almost always come in a place of wilderness, of life, in, in the forest of Lothlorien, in the forests of Fangorn, in the, in the old forest with Tom Bombadil. So in, in theory, uh, the dogs, speaking of wildlife, <laughs> it, in that, but... I think that I, you know what, I, I agree, like, I don't, I think the idea of Eowyn needing to move away from the idea of this sort of masculine glory of battle right. that is shown to be bad and toxic, her needing to move away from that, I totally agree with, I'm fine with. But, like, I wish that the solution had been, even if he wanted to have her hook up with Faramir, like, I'm not opposed to them getting together. Like, I think that you see that both of them have things in common. And I think that, like, I am not opposed to them getting together. That doesn't make me unhappy. But, like, what if... He was like, I've always wanted to travel and see all of these places I learned about in my books. And now there's a king and I can do that. And I don't have to be steward anymore. Like, 
I now have this whole free future ahead of me. Do you want to come with me and come see the world with me? How much better would that have been for Eowyn? The exact opposite of a cage. The idea that she gets to go roam and, and see different places and experience different things and not be just confined to this space. How awesome would it have been if like Faramir and Eowyn ride off into the sunset to go like explore Middle Earth and like revel in all of the glory of, of this place of nature. But no, she's like, I will go and I will go live in my husband's house and I will have a garden. Even they could have been like, we're going to go become traveling healers or something. Or like, we're going to, they could have, there could have been something to do with that idea of like healing, growing, you know, if, if Tolkien wanted to incorporate that. But no, no. And, and her whole problem is Aragorn and, and needing a man, uh, you know, now that's been fixed for her. So it's chill. <sighs> I know. I mean, because they are a good match, because in some ways they've they've both in their own ways operated as the unseen sibling, right? In their families, yes. where they are in some ways discredited because Farmir likes reading books. So what a nerd. And <laughs> Eowyn is a woman. Ugh. Those things are not the same because Farmir is still right. <laughs> very much respected as a captain of Gondor. Right. But, but like they both, there's this big emphasis that they both like do their duty. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like they're dutiful people, even despite like all of this that's put on them. So yeah, no, I agree. I think that they're, they're similar people. I think they operate in similar ways. Yeah. It's unfortunate because uh, the reason why Farmir is able to actually woo her in the end is because Faramir actually makes an effort to see her as she is. You can just feel, and I think Tolkien felt this urge that to, to give her more agency to recognize her as a person with her own wants and everything. And her character is just pushing against this massive weight of institutionalized literary sexism that is just holding her down. It's, you know it's what disappointing. Could have been cool? What? What if, you know, so like Arwen shows up. That's the thing that happens. Yeah. What if like Arwen and Eowyn had like a conversation and like Arwen was the one who like helped Eowyn deal with all of these feelings she's been Ooh. having? Like. Yeah, uh, we're with a pet hospital down the street and I understand you have a dying animal on the premises. What if, you know, Arwen uh. was the one that helped. I think Arwen would potentially like understand i think that like obviously their struggles are very different and arwen's comes mostly from the appendices because like <laughs> yeah tolkien didn't give a sh <laughs> but like arwen's been struggling with making this choice that again essentially comes down to choosing between two men her dad and the guy she's in love with choosing a life that in either way kind of confines her to some sort of unhappy ending, right? Like, <laughs> either way, Arwen's not going to end up happy. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, like, the two of them having a discussion about these difficult choices that are presented to women and the very limited choices they are, and, like, maybe even Arwen helping Eowyn find, like, a third option. The option of just riding out and seeing the world. Why not? I don't know. I just think there could have been something interesting there. I don't know why, like, yeah, we need men lecturing at women about what they're feeling and then having the woman be like, ah, yes, 
You are completely correct, and now I am in love with you, and I will never hold the sword again, and I will tend a garden and have your children. And... <sighs> I, I, okay. I do want to spend some time celebrating her badassery, though. She is bad. Because she does have a very bad moment. I'm just, I'm just going to read it. Where did it happen? This Nazgul is about to eat Theoden, and suddenly Durnhelm, at this point, jumps in and intercedes and says, Be gone, foul dwimmer-like. Oh, God, I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> Lord of Carrion, leave the dead in peace. A cold voice answered, Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. A sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool. No living man can hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seems that Durnhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am. I feel funny speaking these lines. <laughs> Eowyn's daughter, you stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. The winged creature screamed at her, but the ring wraith made no answer and was silent as if in sudden doubt. First of all, the description of the way the Ringwraith threatens to torture her, I don't know if it's just me, but it does feel rapey. And the fact that Eowyn's response to that is to just laugh in his face. I guess the interesting thing for me is that it almost feels arbitrary. Like, why does it matter that she's a woman? It's... <laughs> The the idea, I obviously there's like the wordplay there because he's like, no man can kill me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But it's like, does it really matter that she's a woman? And it seems to matter in the sense that <laughs> nothing, nothing scares men. And I suppose including the ghosts of dead men <laughs> more than a woman who doesn't deal with their... I, I know that other people have pointed this out before me, but it feels a lot like a reference to Macbeth, uh, the prophecy that, like, no band born of a woman or whatever can kill me, or whatever the prophecy is, Macbeth. None of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Oh, but actually this guy was born through C-section, <laughs> so he can do it. And that's why, like, you know, it's, it's the combined efforts of a hobbit and a woman that ultimately slay the Witch King. And I think also it follows along with the general themes of the story that like it's the people sort of you least expect that in the end have the most heroism within them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the whole point of the Hobbits, right? <laughs> and so I think it's another mm -hmm. another moment of that theme coming through in, in Eowyn. But yes, it is an excellent moment. I was a little worried going in because in the movies, Mary knows it's Eowyn the whole time, but this time he, he doesn't recognize her. And, you know, I was worried that Eowyn was going to kill the Witch King as Durnhelm and then only afterwards reveal that she's Eowyn. And I was going to, I was going to complain about how that, how like a woman has to be in a man's guise or whatever to like, right. you know, but no, no, before, 
before she, you know, actually strikes out at him, she has revealed herself as Eowyn. It's very much her. There's a lot of the description of her that's very feminine, but it's also the strength is in her femininity. And so I think that there's, my in my book, it's only like two pages, but those two pages are excellent pages for Eowyn. Eowyn is absolutely amazing, and the narrative knows she's amazing. And I suppose it's somewhat realistic that this singular epic moment does not solve sexism. <laughs> like a page later, Theoden takes credit for killing the Nazgul. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it because I, I have a hard time getting a sense of Tolkien's intentions with this moment because it it feels like a man trying his best to be progressive and falling quite a bit of a ways short. One could even say that if you look at the appendices with, with Arwen who, mm-hmm. again, only gets to talk, like, twice in the actual story. But there's the, the in Appendix A, it talks about, like, you know, her relationship with Aragorn and how that whole thing happened and how, you know, <laughs> then the ending, which, like, wow, that's tragic as <laughs> But I thought uh, there is something interesting about the fact that, like, it's very much her choice and her decision. And there is something very... Like, again, it's a choice between her dad or the guy she wants to bang. But, like, Uh I still think there's something nice about, like, she's uh, very active in the decision-making process. Like, Aragorn falls in love with her pretty much immediately. But she's, like, not initially interested. And it's not until later that she reciprocates his feelings and makes the decision that she wants to be with him. And then starts, you know, working toward that future. There is some agency there. There is some acknowledgement of, like, female desire, which I think is nice. That, like, she didn't have it when yes. she met him when he was, like, 17. She's uh-huh. like, you're a child. Maybe when you're older. And then, like, she grows to have those feelings for him, and then she works towards what she wants. But at the same time, like, obviously, it's, it makes her entire life about men and, like, what man she wants to spend the rest of her life with so like it's another one of those things where like there is something about it that's interesting and progressive and not as much as eowyn by (laughs) any stretch of the imagination but something like uh, elrond doesn't want her to do this but like he accepts her choice that's something but it's not it's not getting there it's not getting there at all and I'm glad that we have these small moments because small moments are better than absolutely nothing, but they're small. Oh, we're bringing back small. Small. Yes, and small moments don't quite do it. Not very nice at all, my love. So Aragorn sucks. (laughs) Aragorn sucks. Let's talk about that. Yeah. How do you feel? Because as I was reading this story, I thought... Morgan, oh Morgan, she is going to be sad. Yeah. As people may remember, Aragorn is your favorite from the movies. From the movies. Very specifically. Frodo is absolutely my book favorite. I am unafraid to say that. Frodo is my child. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, I didn't honestly have much hope for him. Uh Uh-huh. Because... 
He's had his moments. Like, in Fellowship, he definitely had a lot of fun moments. Two Towers, he had some moments. But, you know, like, overall, like, the his story is so different. And, and we talked last time about how I felt weird about Aragorn's very role in the story of, like, the king. <laughs> the idea that he's destined for this and, and better than everyone else. And I think that Tolkien kind of validated some of the stuff you were saying last time with this whole, like, the hands of the king or the hands of a healer. And so the idea that everyone's like healing Gondor and that's why he can be king is because he is a healer. But it, yeah, just this whole, this whole book, one, we don't see much of him. So honestly, there's just not much to go off of, but he's fully in like king mode now. Goes off to the past of the dead and he like, I mean, I guess he technically asks Legolas and Gimli if they want to go, but he's kind of like, they're, you're coming with me, right? And they're like, yeah. And he leaves Mary behind. And mm-hmm. he, you know, has that horrible moment with Eowyn. And then, like, arrives and, like, arbitrarily refuses to go into the city until they're like, you're king. And there's just, like, a lot of weirdness. There's just not much to his character at this point beyond, like, he wants he wants to be king. And he wants everyone to accept him as king. Yeah. I hated him from the moment he started talking about the past of the dead because literally every person he meets, he tells them about, oh, I'm taking the past of the dead. Did you know I'm going down the past of the dead? (laughs) Oh, I'm taking the road to the past of the dead. Look at me. Am I not so fucking edgy? I'm going to the past of the dead. And it's just like, shut the fuck up and just go, dude. And you know. You know, Morgan, how I feel about the whole idea of destiny. It is really hammered in this book that Aragorn is destined to be king. There's even a God (coughs) prophecy poem. Yeah, he's just such a f***ing wet blanket anytime he appears in the book. It's just, he's so, it comes off as like really self-important and... Again, it's the, it's the wars for good boys. It's like he has to <laughs> proclaim how good and amazing he's being in like this really humble brag sort of way that's just so grating. Oh god, I hate him. I hate him so much. I'm I'm curious if some elements of this book weren't actually ghost by C.S. Lewis because this oh is my, more fitting. No, no, <laughs> you cannot blame this on Clive. This is Tolkien all the way. Nah, nah. Uh, Not even in a joke. I Tolkien needs know. to take some f***ing responsibility. Tolkien messed up with Aragorn really badly. And, it, and you know, to me, it's just all the more credit to the movies for bringing that character back from the dead. Yeah. Figo Mortensen, bless his heart. He brought a, a sense of humanity to a character that is just so lacking in it in this book. Yeah. I mean, like, I know that, like, Peter Jackson is, is known for adding, like, forced conflict mm-hmm. or whatever to The Lord of the Rings. And there's definitely some moments where I'm like, I agree. But, like, the eternal conflict he gives to Aragorn... It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's good. I love I love Aragorn not wanting to do this thing, being scared of his heritage, 
I think that's such a powerful, a good, powerful theme within Lord of the Rings that makes sense is like right. a fear of the past and of the past happening again. Like that works so well. But it's weird that like, as we talked about in, in, in a series that kind of takes everything else and asks us to question it, this divine right of kings thing is yes. played completely straight with Aragorn. Whereas I think the movie, like, yes, in the end, Aragorn becomes king and that's like important. But I think it's it's because he well it comes in, he earns it or he chooses yeah. it in this way that he he doesn't in the book he's in the book he's just like yeah i'm gonna do this and then part of it you find out in the appendix is because elrond's like well like my daughter isn't gonna be wed to just some like dude so then part <laughs> of all of this is because aragorn wants to get the girl i can't decide if that makes it worse or not <laughs> I, like yeah. it certainly doesn't help it <laughs> What does help it? This is also buried in the appendices where it talks about the fall of Numenor, which is mm. the mythical land where all these, where Aragorn's ancestors came from, basically. Numenor is Atlantis in the world of Middle-earth. But oh, that, cool. that's, doesn't, that's, uh, that's over there. Put it over there. It doesn't matter. What we learn in the fall of Numenor is that Sauron was actually taken prisoner and brought back there and through his own machinations became the advisor to the king. The reason we learn that Sauron is so effective in his, in his council, in his poisonous council, is that the men of Numenor, especially the leaders and the king of Numenor, is unbelievably terrified of dying. And they actually try to go to war with the Undying Lands, basically, and, and break their way in. Wow. Of course, they lose. Numenor is sunk into the sea, and they basically become exiles and move to Middle-earth. In that sense, Aragorn facing the pass of the dead is actually a really powerful moment. Because in some ways, it's a rejection of that past failing. It's him saying, I'm not afraid of dying. And so you see in this way how Aragorn is, is claiming parts of his heritage that allow him to be king, but also making this active decision to reject the parts that brought about the downfall of the past kings. You are a Sildor's heir, not a Sildor himself. You are not bound to his fate. You know, it would have been nice to have seen that in the main body of this story rather than have it buried somewhere in the appendices because that does a lot to redeem Aragorn's character. But it wasn't in the story. But it wasn't in the story. And so you just have to operate with what's there. And I mean, how many people are going to be reading these appendices? Come on, Tolkien. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I only scanned like two. Yeah, and that's fair. Because, frankly, the appendices, the specific appendix where that, that information was buried in, was full of just so much historical filler that it, it's tedious to get through to find that gold nugget, a thematic material. And it's a shame. It is a shame. It gives Aragorn's character a lot more credit than he's given in the book itself. Uh, speaking of sort of unnecessary historical filter, I think one of the things that 
let me know I wasn't going to enjoy this book as much when I started, is that we do, we get Mary and Pippin's perspective. So much fun. Love that. Love them. Was so excited. But then so much of it is spent just talking about like Gondor and like its history and its landscape. And it's like, I don't know, everything. (laughs) That, like, I was getting really bored during Pippin's chapters because I was like, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> um, this is just too much. Like, we've talked before about, like, how Tolkien just sort of, like, will randomly stop on world building. Right, right. It was more, I felt like, than, <laughs> than ever before. It was just a lot of just, like, and this is more about Gondor and this is about Gondor. And was much of it useful? No, no, not at all to the story, no. I think that part of the the issue that you see in the in these final two parts of The Lord of the Rings is that some of the as the stories progress, Tolkien starts reining himself in less. Mm-hmm. And so you get more and more like sort of padding. Like how the movies kind of get more and more as they go and are yes. less of a tightly constructed story. So I think that that's that's part of the issue that that we're seeing. And then obviously a lot of what we commented on is sort of the mixed messages that are are really abound in this part of the story. Whether it's the mixed messages with Eowyn or with Frodo or, yeah, with Aragorn. That's really a lot of the problem in, in this section is that it doesn't feel as satisfying because it doesn't feel as coherent. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame, too, because I actually... Loved the character of Denethor. I thought he was really, really Mm -hmm. interesting and complex, but he is buried in all this historical stuff surrounding him. And it's it's a shame because his he is so Machiavellian. Mm. He's really compelling. He's very charismatic. He's very intelligent. And when you hear him speak, much like Farmir where Farmir was very insightful in sort of interrogating Frodo and Sam, Denethor is the exact same way, but with a malevolent tinge because he has been poisoned in some ways by Sauron. He's really compelling, and it's only because Gandalf happens to be there to kind of dispute his points that like Pippin doesn't fall into the trap of just buying everything that Denethor is saying. And it's... You know, you get this sense of tragedy with Denethor because it's there's a very telling detail where Pippin remarks how Denethor, despite being the father of Boromir, he actually seems to bear more resemblance to Aragorn. And I think um, Gandalf has a line later about how the line of Numenor somehow is almost completely there within him, like. In some ways, Denethor has as much claim to this kingdom by his heritage as Aragorn does. And you just see the way doubt and ambition and jealousy corrupt him. I mean, we saw it with Boromir of just this good person. And I don't think there's, despite (laughs) Denethor, you know, saying very unkind things to his <laughs> child and and also trying to you know burn said child alive uh before all that like i i do think the the narrative acknowledges like there was a time where denethor was among the wisest but all these things have corrupted him and turned him into this 
shell of his former self. He almost stands in as like a symbolic representation of the state of Gondor itself. Mm. And unfortunately, you kind of lose that because there, there's just all these other things that are being introduced at the same time. And you're not quite sure what's really important. And I, and I think you're right. Like Tolkien did not really trim the fat as much with this book. They're like probably the biggest thing. Oh God, this was so annoying. Uh, is in the the introduction of the healers. <laughs> it's the most. Oh. It's a terrible. It's Tolkien's. It's obnoxious. Attempt at a terrible, terrible joke of like these uh, healers who are very talkative, very dumb, and there's just like paragraphs and paragraphs devoted to dialogue with them, where they're just saying nothing until finally somebody one of the other characters jumps in and says, shut up. I don't mean this to disparage, but it feels like the kind of joke that C.S. Lewis would make in his. Oh, no, I agree. It does seem because it's it's deliberately ribbing at like, so there's two different, I think, healers who get talked about. One of which is like a man who's like very academic. And he's like, in all of our stories, like never has this herb been used this way. And then the other one is this woman who just keeps rambling and going on instead of actually. Yeah, she's you know? like the, the housemaid that talks too much is the feeling you get, right? Right. So it's like, it does very much, especially with the, the man, feel like one of Clive's jokes about like, oh, those useless academics. <laughs> That don't actually know anything. Right. And then more insidiously with the woman, it's like, oh, those women, they just talk too yep. much. And that's, uh, it's painful. It is painful. It's very annoying. And like, I think that a lot of like Pippin getting shown around, I find relatively useless. There's the whole thing with Baragond where like he makes a friend of this guardsman and then later on the guardsman helps keep Faramir's body from being burned yeah but then because he defied orders he has to be punished so he goes with them to fight and then he's like who Pippin is defend or helping to defend when he almost gets killed and then like there's a scene where Aragorn pardons him of all of his everything but he has to banish him from Minas Tirith but oh it's okay because he's sending him to be with Faramir so there's this whole plot line for this character yeah. Which they wisely cut out of the movie because, like, it's not necessary. And at this point, we don't need, like, again, this is the same chapter we've just met Denethor. We don't necessarily need this guy. He's not, I mean, he seems like a fine enough dude. I have no problems with him from personal level, but it's just like, <laughs> his storyline was not one I needed or cared about at this point. It was a little bit late to be introducing that and expecting me to, like, okay, I'm on board. And that time could have been used better for something else. If you were going to keep that character the way I would have, you know, not that we're talking about fixing this narrative or anything, but there's an earlier point where the writers of Rohan are mustering to get ready to head to Minas Tirith when a messenger from Gondor comes and says, guys, you need to hurry it up. Like things are really, really bad. It would have been cooler if, like, that character had been Baragon, and so he met Mary and could talk about Mary with Pippin, and they could have that kind of connection so they wouldn't feel as useless. I don't know. It, I feel like there was potential with this character because there's a very tragic moment with Denethor when Denethor is getting ready to burn Faramir alive, and Baragon is torn between performing his duty 
and following orders and saving Farmir's life. And he actually right. kills two of his comrades to try to protect Farmir. And it's this like devastating moment of, of seeing how the enemy's machinations have worked to turn people against themselves. And just uh, Gandalf has a really telling line to Pippin is like, so falls Gondor as you know it. And I, and I think when you parallel that to the scouring of the Shire, you see what it means to have that moment happen. It's like, a, it's like the Cain and Abel moment. Mm. Once murdering your own folk is introduced, there's no putting that back into the, into the box. It's tragic. But, you know, it, it's, you have to get through a lot. You have to get through a lot of prattle to get to those moments. And that's mm. if and when I reread this book, I'll probably just start with the second half with Frodo and Sam, because I just like, I, I didn't really get that much out of the no. first half of this book. And it's a shame because you can see the elements there that would have made it really impactful and really profound in, the, in a lot of ways. The best moments were like the small moments when either like Mary and Pippin think about each other a lot, a lot. And all the moments where they're thinking about each other are so touching and often reveal something about their character. And I love those moments. But I think I think also part of the problem with, with that section is that our fellowship is all split up. Mary and Pippin aren't together. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are, but we only get like one chapter of them. And quite frankly, they're not really talking with each other much. There's also all these like ranger guys there. So it's not even just the three of them. There's just these other characters we don't care about. And like, I, I should mention too, that like Legolas and Gimli are basically non-existent in this yeah. book. Um, there are a couple like lines about them here and there, but they're mostly just not around or important or relevant. Which is sad because they're great characters and they deserve to be around and important and relevant. And so I think that part of the problem is that like we're we're sold on this group of characters in the first book. As we've said again and again, the strength of these books is their friendship and us believing in that and, and the ways in which, you know, that helps drive the story and helps them do things they might not otherwise be able to do. And that's just not really a factor. I mean, I guess Gandalf's with Pippin. Well, not really, though, because a large portion Most of the first <laughs> half, Gandalf's just running around doing other things. So <laughs> not even the... Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. It's the, This story is at its strongest when people are together. Sam and Frodo are best when they're together. Merry and Pippin are best when they're together. Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn are best when they're together. And, and, and so when you see them all kind of separating off is when the narrative starts to lose its momentum a little bit. And to its credit, the, the ending, for the most part, is really, really strong. That's when it recaptures some of the, the flavorings, I guess, of, of the Fellowship of the Ring. But, man, do you have to go through a lot to get there. It is a shame. Okay. We should close off with some of the more positive takeaways, because I think we've been really negative in, <laughs> in yes. this episode about this book. I I think that, again, I want to reiterate that I love that in the appendices, when it briefly mentions Gimli, it does talk about how, like, probably Legolas takes him to the Undying Lands with him. Yes. I love that, like, they go see the caves, and then Legolas comes out and is like... Big! Wow! All of the moments where Merry and Pippin are, like, missing each other and wishing the other was there. Beautiful. 
all of the moments with Frodo and Sam. I mean, the moment where, like, after the ring is destroyed and Sam takes Frodo out and is able to see that he's free of the ring and he's back to being Frodo again. And then Frodo says, I'm glad you're here with me, Sam. Here at the end of all things. I, I just literally got shivers just saying that out loud. Yeah. It's a beautiful moment. There are so many good moments where people care about other people. Actually, you know what? I'm going to give Tolkien a positive. Mm. I really liked Rosie in this. The movie makes her into a stock female character. But like the one scene you get with Rosie in the book, she like pops off the page. She's dynamic. She's interesting. Tolkien did this one female character better. And I think Sam and her really love each other and have a great life. Well, clearly they do. To echo what you were saying, I'm just going to read the passage where Legolas takes Gimli to the Undying Lands. We have heard tell that Legolas took Gimli, Gloin's son, with him because of their great friendship, greater than any that has been between elf and dwarf. If this is true, then it is strange indeed that a dwarf should be willing to leave Middle-earth for any love, or that the Eldar should receive him, or that the Lords of the West should permit it. But it is said that Gimli went also out of desire to see again the beauty of Galadriel, (laughs) and it may be that she, being mighty among the Eldar, obtained this grace for him. More cannot be said of this matter. Tolkien is so good at kind of allowing speculation into his stories. It invites your imagination to fill in the gaps. This is going to sound like a an insult, but I, I don't intend it to be, where I think Tolkien recognizes some of his own limitations as a writer. Or not even his own, but just like the limitations of storytelling. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is to leave a thing unsaid. Mm-hmm. And there's so much, even in that small passage, that is left unsaid about... The decision-making that went into Gimli deciding to leave Middle-earth, Legolas deciding to invite Gimli, that allows you to fill in so much more emotion than if than if he just said, oh yeah, and Galadriel said it was okay, so Gimli came along, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you're right. They're, they're just thinking about the end of all those moments when the characters are together, professing their gratitude for everything that has happened. It's just so powerful. Even that last line, well, I'm back. I mean, it's beautiful. He's home. He's home with Rosie Khan and his kid and more kids to come. And I should also add, we kind of alluded to this way back when, but it is also suggested that at the end of his life, Sam does go west. He does go to the Undying Lands because technically... He is a ring bearer, and all the ring bearers are destined to leave Middle-earth for the Undying Lands. And that's another thing Tolkien kind of leaves leaves open. It's mentioned that that's a possibility. He can neither confirm nor deny, but it allows you to think about that frickin' reunion and what that must have been like. Perhaps much like many of the reunions that will occur after this pandemic is over. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uh, Well, like I said with the last 
series, Morgan, I'm glad to be here with you <laughs> at the end. At the end of, of all this, things. Of this book series. <laughs> one one wild ride indeed. <laughs> the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. And and pony violence in between. <laughs> Yeah. You know what? Actually, that's a great note to end on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Sam is reunited with Bill the Pony. And that's, you know what? Forget Sam and Fredo reuniting in the Undying Lands. The most impactful reunion is Sam and the Pony Bear. Mm. On that note. (laughs) On that note. We'll see you next time with whatever we're doing next. We do not know. You know what? Leave comments, send emails, let us know what you would like to see us cover next because we are undecided. So you have the power. Maybe. I mean, maybe it's an illusory power because we ultimately decide. But much like Eowyn with her garden, we'll give you the impression of freedom. So. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, well, until next time. Bye bye.